Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard. Hello, and welcome to A Public Affair. My name is Nate Carlin, and I'll be your host for this hour. Our guest today is Erica Turner. She's an associate professor in the Department of Educational Policy Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her book, Suddenly Diverse, How School Districts Manage Race and Inequality, will be featured in the Wisconsin Book Festival, with Erica Turner giving a presentation on October 21st at the Central Library. Erica, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So your book, Suddenly Diverse, is kind of the tale of two school administrations. Uh, can you t- give me an overview of these two communities you were looking at? Yeah. So these are two Wisconsin communities. Um, the year is around 2009. And um, uh, they're, they're different, though they have some similarities. Both school systems in both communities are undergoing demographic changes. So there's greater inequality in their schools. There's also greater racial ethnic diversity. Um, and, and that's pretty similar across, across both uh, locales. Um, they both have about, at the time that I was visiting, they both had about um, a, l- a little under 50% or around 50% students of color and um, students identified for um, a free or reduced price meal from the federal government. So those things were similar in both places. They're diversifying. Um, they're becoming more unequal. And um, but in other ways, they're really quite distinct. So in Milltown, um, or the place that I call Milltown, it's a working class, um, traditionally manufacturing-based community in Wisconsin. It's kind of a, a purple <laughs> um, political orientation. It's conservative, but there are both um, elected officials that are both Republicans and Democrats. Um, and there's a notable anti-immigrant politics in, um, in the county that Milltown's located in. The school district itself is about 20,000 students, um, similar to Fairview. Fairview, on the other hand, is um, similar demographic changes, but a more resourced community with a more middle-class population. Um, Traditionally, um, the work has been more in services and healthcare, and there's a reputation for being politically liberal, espousing values of racial equity and inclusion in, in, in Fairview. Um, so, politically and economically, the places are are distinct. Now, I just want to clarify too that Milltown and Fairview are both pseudonyms for these cities, correct? Exactly. Yes, they're both pseudonyms um, for for real places. <laughs> so these two cities are they're, they're, they have similarities. They have differences. W- w- give me a, a backdrop to education in Wisconsin in two thousand nine. What what kind of issues were the districts facing? 
Yeah. Well, the issues um, kind of aren't too different from what a lot of districts are, are um, facing today, in part because some of the issues are just very structural and deep. But in 2009, if you remember, also, I, I should mention it was kind of the Great Recession. So 2008 was the Great Recession. Um, and during that time across the country, but also in Wisconsin, state budgets um, for education were cut pretty dramatically. And they've never really recovered from that time, although we have other like federal money has put uh, federal dollars have put some money into schools that's expiring now. Um, but other things were going on. So no child left behind the um, federal policy for high stakes accountability, which is administered by the state. Um, was uh, was probably uh, was occurring and was kind of the pressure from that was bearing down after a few years. That went into um, into effect in 2002, and so at that point, 2008-9, several years under the program, the the um, expectations for student um, test score passage was increasing every year. So every year it would be a little higher than the year before, higher than the year before. And the idea was that by 2012, it should get to um, 100% proficiency um, across all groups of students in every school, in every district. So that was, again, not specific to Wisconsin, but that was also a a huge pressure happening in districts in Wisconsin. Budget cuts were were a huge problem. Or um, so again, because of state budgets, but also um, rising costs around well, many things: transportation, special education, just in general, budgets hadn't been increased. And there's a kind of a structural budget problem in Wisconsin that that helps to make that so. Um, and then there's heightened competition. Um, so. Wisconsin has, like many states, uh, what's called an open enrollment policy at the state level. It allows um, students to transfer from whatever their home district is based on their residence to any other district in the state. And um, that there used to be caps on the number of students that could transfer from one to another. But just about at the around 2008, those caps get lifted. And um, at the same time, um, there's uh, also this kind of advent of virtual schools. So now um, you it, it would have been that you would still have to, if you wanted to enroll your, your child in another school district, you had to drive them there. There's no transportation provided for the program. Um, so that obviously limits who can use it to those who can transport their child to another school district. Um, but it also, so virtual schooling gets around that. Um, and so for those reasons, as well as others, uh, there's this heightened competition, not so much like school choice and charter schools, um, which was mostly limited at that time to the Milwaukee area, but um, this kind of competition and choice around surrounding districts. Um, And so these districts are losing uh, some enrollments as well. So your book, kind of the thesis of your book is that in response to these factors, these issues, the communities, they turn to what you call colorblind managerialism. Um, What is colorblind managerialism? Can you give me a a brief overview? Yeah. Um, So 
in my book, I, I kind of identify this, uh, I call it in the book colorblind managerialism, but I'm, I try now to use the language of race evasive managerialism because there's a certain um, ableism that's baked into the uh, metaphor of colorblindness as not seen. But the notion came from um, a scholar called Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who noted that a lot of racism um, came from people denying racism. <laughs> and so he called this kind of colorblindness or colorblind racism. So you would hear people say, especially beginning in the 1980s, I don't see race, right? And it was a way of saying, I'm not racist, but yet in not seeing race, you were not acknowledging all the ways in which race has structured our society um, from housing and home ownership to education and, and school administration. So um, this idea of colorblindness or race evasiveness is to minimize the importance of race to our society. Um, and people do this in different ways. So one way is saying, you know, I don't see race. Another way is kind of saying, you know, racism's a thing of the past. We used to have it, but now it's pretty much gone. Look at Barack Obama, you know, he was president, or they might say the problem isn't really racism, it's economics or it's cultural deficits or problems with individual people and their cultural adaptation. Um, and so all of these ways are ways of saying race isn't really a problem or racism or white supremacy aren't a problem. Colorblind managerialism kind of starts with this idea that we don't already have a race problem or at least it doesn't try to address it. And the managerialism part of it is about taking kind of ideas about business and applying them to schooling. So ways of um, leading public institutions like public schools that um, may draw on ideas about corporate or entrepreneurial models of managing or organizing um, public systems. So we see like the emphasis on generic management skills you no longer need to be a teacher or a school leader to become superintendent. Now what you need are these kind of generic business skills. And so our superintendents are sometimes called CEOs um, rather than, you know, the head, the head teacher um, or the head um, administrator. Um, but also related to this idea of kind of operating schools as businesses are the ideas of quantitative measurement of outcomes and that being the basis for making decisions. So it's a kind of accounting approach. Um, what are our numbers and therefore what should we do? Um, there's also competition and so the idea that school leaders should be um, competing um, and marketing their schools and trying to attract um, the most students. And so these kinds of strategies are seen as like a primary means, uh, a good means of guiding public organizations. So the problem with this is that those kinds of means don't really, and this is, I should say, this is this is not just in these two districts, Mill, uh, Milltown and Fairview, it's nationally or even globally, you see this idea that you don't really know need to know about teaching or learning or about youth development to run a school. It can be done by a business person. It can be done like kind of as a business. Um, and, and, and so, the problem with this is, again, that most of these approaches are race evasive. Um, they don't actually disturb the underlying racism that 
has structures a lot of the school outcomes and opportunities that we have in, in the U.S. And without explicitly doing so, we leave those things in place and those patterns continue. So it could even make it worse because it feels like you're doing something, but you're not. Um, and this is, um, you know, kind of why I think it's important to identify it and call it out and try to understand what it is and where it comes from. And in your book, who is it that you're talking to? Who, who, what were the interviews that, that you undertook there? Yeah, I'm really focused on um, school district leadership. And so these are school board members, um, the elected um, citizens who are ultimate authorities at the school district level for making decisions, and then also superintendents, assistant superintendents, and um, and central office workers. And those are the people who are hired by the school board um, and uh, fired by the school board um, in order to run the schools and make decisions. So the two groups, often they're looked at differently, but they both bear responsibility for deciding what happens in schools um, and what are the kinds of policies and practices that will be adopted in our school systems. And the U.S. is really unique um, in that so many of our decisions, even with federal intervention, are made at these local levels. So I think of folks, school board members and, and superintendents, assistant superintendents, as really um, consequential public leaders. And they determine a lot about what schools look like, what their goals are, how they try to enact um, and, and, and realize improvements. It's not, but as the school, as the book shows, there's a lot of challenges that they face in their work. Their, their hands are, are tied in many ways. So, Yeah, I, I like your formulation of race evasiveness because it's not necessarily that the, the interviews never talked about race or even like gestured towards race, but somehow in action, they, they ended up taking a step back and, and adopting different language. I can go back to kind of because one thing I, I, I think that's a really important point. And one thing that I try to, you know, sometimes say to people to help them get this is with race evasiveness, um, it's not that people don't recognize there is racism. They're really minimizing it. And, and anti-racism or the idea of not being a racist person is really important. And it's important across the political spectrum. So even uh, I will say even Donald Trump has called himself the least racist person alive. And yet at the same time, he will carry out and, and say all these other things that are pretty much the definition of racism for most people. So, you know, keep them out, build a border wall, um, et cetera. These are kind of typical tropes. And so just to say that most of us um, across the political spectrum are really invested in being seen as anti-racist and, and probably think of ourselves as such. Um, and it, so it's not so much that people don't say there's racism or that we should try to address it. In fact, they may do that. That may be the justification um, for these managerial approaches. Um, but in fact, even as they're calling it anti-racism, they're actually not addressing racism in their actions. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT. Today, we're with Erica Turner discussing her book, Suddenly Diverse, How School Districts Manage Race and Inequality. This is a pre-recorded interview, so we will not be able to take calls. 
I, I, I want to dig in a little bit on this idea of legitimacy that comes up throughout mm-hmm. the book and the sort of the, the way these administrators seek legitimacy. Um, you want to maybe touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a long running theme in studies about schools is that one of the hardest things is to really know has a school done a job well, because we have so many things first that we want schools to accomplish, like we have goals for how they can improve our democracy and our society at an individual level, we want kids to learn academics, but then we also want them to become good people and, you know, have a, you know, a litany of other topics. So the, the question is, like, how do you know that the school has done that? And schools, you know, how do you measure has your, how schools have contributed to society? Or how do you measure um, that you've created a well-rounded child, right? Um, raised up somebody who's socially or emotionally, you know, strong. And what role does the school have in that versus families or other, you know, aspects of society? So it's always kind of been a tenuous legitimacy. Like we love teachers, but also we blame them for everything. Um, And so this is kind of a perennial problem in schools. I'm not saying that people go around saying, are we legitimate? Are we not? But the issue um, is perennially attention, right? Um, And schools as products of their communities um, have an obligation to, um, you know, to kind of satisfy the public or serve it in some way. Um, so, so nobody was saying like, we're not legitimate, but in fact, they want people to continue to support the schools. Right. And that's important financially. Um, but just also in terms of, um, you know, general support for what they're doing. Um, so, that's kind of the issue and it's um there's also a sense that schools should be serving everyone equally um there's an equity goal that we have for schools um it's a democratic goal for schools and yet when we see the demographic changes and schools are not doing that that's also a challenge to their legitimacy um and so they need to find ways to try to uh you know for the schools to continue, they need to find ways to kind of address those questions around their legitimacy. And so one of the ways they can do so are to try to, you know, kind of show to the public that they're doing something well, (laughs) they're doing a good job. And um, so part of how they do that is they're, you know, they are concerned about, you know, test scores, even if there's many reasons to think that test scores are not largely the product of what schools do. Um, nonetheless, they're judged on that. Uh, so there's a, a strong motivation there to try to have higher test scores or to have people understand something about test scores. Um, and then, and, and similarly, um, more diverse schools, more racially diverse schools, schools that have larger numbers of students of color, especially black students, the way racism works in our country, that's often seen as not a good school. And assumption aside from any kind of evidence or data. And so that's also something that they're challenged by. And they kind of think about how to help people think differently about that. And one way they hit on is uh, by marketing diversity. So I write about both of those things a little bit more. um, But that's part of um, there's a financial element to it, certainly about ensuring the continuity of the school systems. They need that support for it. But there's also just a kind of sense of their public institutions and they need to have legitimacy with the public. 
And there's an interesting part of your book where you talk about how they often reference this idea of the community as the sort of assumed to be <laughs> white and more affluent and more mobile, the, the ones that are leaving, and also kind of the tax base, the ones that maybe don't have child or school-aged children um, as sort of the audience for a lot of the district administrator's actions. You, you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this gets to the idea that, you know, ra- that schools or the context in which they operate in are race neutral and, and how they aren't. So um, one of the, you know, one of the considerations that families, that the, the school leaders have is um, they don't want to lose enrollments of families who are white and or economically privileged. And um, let's see, <laughs> how can I back up? So so basically, if, okay, so the way a school district is organized, the way school districts are organized is um, based on residents and our communities are largely segregated. So we tend to have, not just in Wisconsin, but nationally, again, um, uh, cities that are more racially diverse and suburbs that are less so. Now that's changing. Suburbs are becoming are rapidly diversifying in many cases, although the suburbs also may be segregated between each other. Um, and so what this means is that, um, uh, w- and where you can live is also often based on the kind of wealth that your family has, which is also in, implicated in, in race. Um, so uh, for school district people who are bounded by a locality, um, your they want to hold on to as many students as they can because your your enrollment funding comes through your enrollment. If a child changes to another district, they um, enroll to another district. Money goes with them to that other district or to a charter school or to a virtual system. Um, so. It has a financial cost um, that district people are very aware of. They think of the people who are opting out often as um, white and more privileged, privileged, and that is certainly um, those systems advantage those families. So if you have more money, you can move. You can buy a house somewhere else much more easily, or you can use that um, inter-district enrollment program because you can drive your, you're more likely to be able to have the time and money to drive or transport your child to another district. So for various reasons, it's easier often for um, privileged families to use their resources to opt out of the schools. I do think there's also this interesting part of the the teachers and the administrators themselves are also whiter and more affluent than the populations they're serving. So they they sort of end up yeah. talking to themselves a little bit about reputation yeah. and. Yeah, yeah. So 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 on the one hand, um, what happens a lot is um, white and privileged families kind of know that the schools want to maintain their enrollments, and that they are particularly concerned about losing those kinds of families. And so they will threaten, um, like, if you don't do this thing, you don't give us, uh, you know, um, the advanced placement classes that we want, we're going to send our child to another school system. Um, So that's one dynamic. Another dynamic is that often in these particular districts at this time, the school board members and the administrators were also 
from these communities and they when they went to the grocery store they would hear from others who are in their same grocery store in their same neighborhood or from their neighbors about what they thought the priorities were for the district and that shaped how they thought about what the problems were and what needed to be addressed um, so in many different ways you know the those ideas about you know what school problems were and who needed to be served were already you know um, structured into or systematically privileged those particular kinds of families concerns in how and how school systems make decisions can, can you talk a little bit in your in your book you sort of show these different aspects of urbanness and how mm. the idea of urban it can be scary for the administrators, but also they try to, to promote it. And there's all these just different ways of, of looking at urbanness. Um, can, yeah. you, can you go through some of the ones you describe? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think in both places, because they people were aware that the demographics were changing, they had a story that they told about why and how that was. And part of those stories in both places was the people from Milwaukee were or from Chicago um, which was a way of, without talking about race, saying black people um, were coming to their communities. They were becoming more diverse. Um, and and that kind of taps into a broader kind of national story we have about white flight and the relationship in, in, in these larger um, post-industrial cities that um, kind of what would happen is you know, that there could be like this story of white people leaving and then suddenly the city has no financial base and it kind of becomes in decline. And that was one way of thinking about, you know, urban space as diverse or racially changing, um, but very much a story of decline. Um, and, you know, that uh, so that in, in an economic sense. And there's a similar story, a related story about urban places becoming more diverse or having more people of color, especially more black people, because there's a lot of kind of anti-blackness around these ideas that um, that was about them becoming kind of unruly, the urban jungle, and that there's all these problems of discipline in the schools, right? Again, it harks back to these larger narratives that we have in the U.S. And then there's kind of a third one, or at least another one that I think is important, and it's the one that in many ways, um, knowing about those other two stories, district leaders latched onto a third one, and that's about urban spaces as having people of color and having, you know, kind of diversity um, and having a lot of kind of, um, in a, in a positive cultural, multicultural and cosmopolitan way. And so these are, that's kind of like your, um, you know, your sex in the city, right? Like it's futuristic. It's where there's a lot of glossiness. It's connections to the, to the world. Um, urban space is often seen as like where ethnic communities also have strongholds. So it's where ethnic communities are racial, Nice communities may go to get their hair done or find their grocery stores that serve the food that they like or go and return for church <clears throat> for families that have moved to the suburbs. And so those places can also, that's another version of that kind of positive um, urban space. And these were ideas that the, in both places, the districts kind of said, how can we help people understand what's positive about our school systems, which they thought of as becoming urban, <laughs> um, even though they were both cities, obviously. But in this case, that, you know, kind of shows 
how the notion of urban isn't just mean a city, right? It means something more than that in our imaginations. So, um, so they kind of glommed onto these particular ideas of, um, you know, a futuristic place where there's kind of opportunity, um, and also a place that can be considered kind of home for, for racial and ethnic people. And then that sort of gets propagated out in these marketing campaigns, the marketing campaign you describe in your book. Yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, again, the problem of legitimacy, the concern about families moving to the suburbs, all of those things kind of um, start them thinking about, uh, you know, first, how can they, to, to some extent, how can they serve the communities that are there that are, are arriving? And so, for example, in both places, they have um, Latina immigrant families coming, there's a need for um, bilingual programs or programs that can serve <clears throat> them and help them learn English, um, bilingual education and dual language immersion, a particular model of bilingual education where students learn English and Spanish um, or uh, two languages simultaneously and with um, students like half the class typically would be um, uh, monolingual or dominant English speakers and monolingual dominant Spanish or could be Mandarin or other languages speakers. So those started to be, you know, in part from those communities looking for some way to serve um, uh, non-native English speaking students. Um, at the same time, they were concerned about white flight, uh, district leaders are concerned about white flight, the legitimacy, and they kind of had this idea like, how can we show people what's good about diversity? And what they hit on in both places was something like a marketing plan, right? How, like, how can we kind of improve our marketing and largely to these families that were going to be perceived as moving white and, and, and um, economically privileged families? How can we um, attract them or get them to come or stay in our school system. And so they, they came upon marketing plans. And the marketing plans appeal to this idea of diversity kind of generally, but not necessarily specifically. So in Milltown, for example, they kind of unrolled this marketing plan, a, a set of ads that aired on billboards, but also on, on television um, that, uh, that, you know, kind of showed like, you can take cooking classes, you can learn Italian. Well, there really weren't Italian speakers. Um, it, it promoted diversity, but in a very kind of uh, generic way. Um, whereas there were, you know, um, a hardy Hmong population, a hardy um, population of Somali youth, right? They weren't promoting like um, Somali culture, right? They were doing kind of what might think of these high status cultures looked a little bit different in Fairview, um, where they kind of had this idea of trying to help people kind of, um, the, they, they both places also did these bilingual programs, right? The communities had been pushing them for a long time, but as district leaders become more concerned about kind of this white flight idea, they see this as a way to also retain um, white families who would like to have um, a dual language cosmopolitan that kind of tap into that notion of being a global um, global citizen who can, you know, will be doing business around the world. Again, that kind of global cosmopolitan idea. And um, and so these programs, they're, they're, they, you know, they have evidence that they're, um, they can be very successful. They tend to 
um, value both cultures and both languages. And, you know, that's the idea that uh, the impulse behind them and that um, is really positive, right? But the intention behind it again, and so this gets communicated as well, is that it's really about attracting these white and privileged families. Um, in other words, they kind of, uh, it's supposed to equalize the status of these groups, right? That's the kind of idea of the programs and the idea I think behind marketing diversity was like to challenge some of the ideas that the school system or the students are worse because um, there's greater racial diversity. But in their, in their the reasoning and the logic behind the plan, it reinforces that there's certain families we want to keep. <laughs> um, over others, right? These are kind of our valued customers that we're trying to attract. Um, so um, you can see that just like all of the tensions that are there between trying to address um, changing or new needs, um, concerns about economics, about keeping families, um, and, and it's a not perfect response. I think it seems like it feels like we are, you know, diversity in general, right? Seems like this is about equity, but diversity, you know, kind of is about having a lot of different faces or maybe cultures. It doesn't necessarily change any of the underlying um, arrangements in terms of governance or financing of schools. And sort of diversity on its own does have that that aspect of race evasiveness that that pervades the, their strategies, right? It's like not quite saying the thing that is happening in these cities. Oh, yes. I mean, definitely. It could be on the way to it, but it, it's not the same as addressing inequality. Today on A Public Affair, we're with Dr. Erica Turner, a professor in UW-Madison's Department of Educational Policy Studies. She has a new book, Suddenly Diverse, How School Districts Manage Race and Inequality, which will be featured in the Wisconsin Book Festival. This is a pre-recorded interview. I wanted to pivot a little bit to another big part of the book, which which you've alluded to a couple of times, which is the rise of the testing and sort of the, the data-driven school district. Um, can you give me a little bit of the, the why schools changed around here to, to be more data-minded? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, and I mentioned, you know, No Child Left Behind and in general, this kind of push to measure um, and show results. And um, this has a lot to do with it. So No Child Left Behind comes in in 2002. You know, in Milltown, school board members there talked a lot about how before No Child Left Behind, they really didn't kind of examine their data. They didn't think about how they were really doing on test much. And they certainly didn't look at how different groups of students within their districts were doing. And No Child Left Behind required school systems and, and states to disaggregate or divide up test scores by different identified subgroups. So um, by students identified um, as having a disability versus those not, as students identified as English learners and those who are not, as those identified as um, uh, qualifying for a free and reduced price lunch, so a marker of socioeconomic status, and by race. Um, and to look at those different, what they call subgroups, um, and see how they were doing. And all of them were supposed to be um, that the the under the policy, every group needed to improve every year. And if you had one particular group that wasn't your school over many years, your school would be uh, determined to be failing. 
So <clears throat> what this did, kind of broadly speaking, was it drew more attention to how different subgroups were doing. And that was certainly um, something that people in Milltown really, to them, it was something new to, to think about it in that way and to pay attention to it in that way. Um, they talked about that a lot. Um, but it also really focused people on test scores as you know the measure of are you doing well. Um, so both places over the years are in just a few schools. Most of their schools are doing just fine on these measures. Um, but in each place, a few um, of the schools are starting to get multiple years of being designated as um, kind of failing schools under the law. And so <clears throat> they have to do something. If they don't, the consequences are um, around, uh, the schools eventually can be kind of closed. So there's quite a bit of pressure around it. Um, and this brings greater attention to, um, to looking at data. And by data, usually that means test scores on standardized tests um, to to both districts. Um, in, in Fairview, they do something slightly different, which is they they kind of, they're, they're, it's performance monitoring is the way I, I like to talk about it in both places. They're trying to see like, how are we doing? Back to that idea of using business-like approaches in schools. And they're looking at kind of numbers to see, are our numbers going up or not? Um, and so there's a lot of examining of data to try to, to determine that. And they do it a little bit differently in, in um, the monitoring process. And Fairview looks like a strategic plan um, where they put together a community that comes together and they identify different things that they want to measure, how they'll measure it, and then a process of regular monitoring it. And they really follow through on this. So, you know, I think um, <clears throat> there's some things to be commended here in that they try to bring together a cross-section of people in the community to develop this um, uh, monitoring system and then they come back to it um, you know so year after year they're looking at like how are we doing on this metric that we've designed um, are we meeting it etc but in both cases um, in, in Milltown they do a, a performance evaluation of the teachers so they're looking at our teachers raising test scores our schools doing so um, and they're looking at each school and they bring in a lot of their own measures as well, not just the ones that are required under federal law. So they really kind of embrace this in both places and it helps and they feel good about it. They spend a lot of time doing this in both places. I sat in a lot of meetings where they're like looking, you know, teachers are there, they're looking at the test score data from the year before and trying to decide, well, what does this mean for our school? Um, but in, in both places, it becomes so much the thing that they're doing that they're not doing other things. And they weren't even, it's interesting because these were kind of the default um, reforms in each district. So when they thought about early on, um, when they thought about how should we respond and address like teaching and learning and improve that in our districts, both places started with something that looked more like how can we do culturally relevant instruction? How can we help our teachers and our school staff um, understand specific strategies and content that they can use to engage and teach um, racially and ethnically diverse students? Um, and address racism um, that may exist among teaching staff as it does among everybody. And so they tried these in both places and in both places, you know, I think after Milltown, they tried it 
And then after one day, the the response they got from teachers was so strong that they were like, this is never going to work. No one's going to change what they do because they don't even buy into it. In Fairview, they did it actually for a couple years. They had um, professional developer uh, staff come in and do these kind of learning um, activities with um, with district staff. And there were some that were enthusiastic about it, but eventually they also there was kind of this backlash to it and they they quit quit that as well. And so, or they kept it only with a small group of people. So in both places, when those things don't work, right, there's this kind of um, teachers rejecting that approach, um, they turn to the data, data and performance monitoring approaches as ways to like, we still need to do something about, you know, how student performance is in our district. And um, the thing about this is that unlike the earlier efforts that they undertook, these are again race evasive approaches. Looking at data doesn't actually, well, may not do anything, right? Because you might look at the data, you might identify that there's like these disparities, and then you might just go back and teach things the same that you taught them before, which is kind of what happens in a lot of places. Um, so in this case, but it also just took a lot of time from doing other kinds of things that they wanted to do. And so um, they think of what they're doing as addressing achievement gaps, right? Um, and that equity would be kind of raising test scores for all groups or maybe equalizing them. And in that way, it seems like something that addresses racial inequity. Um, but in fact, I argue that it really is not. Um, in many cases, they were just looking at data. <laughs> uh, um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, that it's just, it's very, very, very common across the U.S. Um, almost every district will say they're looking at data. They have, you know, they get together in teams, they examine their results. Um, but that in and of itself doesn't do anything to change, you know, poverty that undermines students' ability to come to school or do well, or, um, you know, uh, the curriculum and um, how it may speak to different students' experiences and knowledge, etc. Uh, the, the example that really brought it home for me was I was in a school board meeting, um, sitting in, in Milltown in a school board meeting, and it was right before Thanksgiving. So meetings are usually on Mondays, I think, there, um, but it was that week. And there weren't a lot of people there, but um, because they were doing this performance monitoring, each elementary school or each school in the district had to come and the principals had to report, uh, give a report on how their school's doing. So they would go through... Um, talk about some of their challenges, what their data was, and how they were going to address it. And, you know, this is like maybe a half hour per per each school. And three schools in a row went, and they all talked about what they called transiency. And that is the fact that large portions of their school, of their children, of the students in their schools, were coming and going every school year. So in one particular school, the, the principal who was in his first year as a principal at that school reported that one third of students would be gone by the end of the year. So they start with almost completely different students. And so when you're testing and looking at your data, what are you looking at? You're looking at, you know, nothing about the students who are actually in your school. But meanwhile, why are they transient? In other words, why are students coming and going? Well, often it's housing insecurity it has a lot to do with poverty. And so data doesn't do anything to address that, right? And for me, that was just a very telling moment in a larger pattern uh, that I was observing around how 
this kind of data monitoring thing could feel like doing something about inequity, right? This was a predominantly students of color and low-income students school. The principal was really like, we're seeing some, you know, movement on these numbers here. Um, but it was questionable if the new numbers even had meaning if you're losing a third of your students. And, and people left that meeting on, in Thanksgiving, just having basically, you know, alluded to how much poverty there was in these low performing schools. And it was Thanksgiving. It was just, to me, kind of mind blowing. Um, but I could see how, you know, people felt good coming out there, like we're doing something and maybe the numbers are going up, you know. Um, <clears throat> Well, and, and to your point about the rise of managerialism, there's this interesting point in the book where someone who doesn't really understand curriculum or hasn't done any instruction is sort of talking about the pivot and trying to change to a, a new curriculum because the data is better, not because of feedback from students or teachers or you know, from the communities that they're serving. It's just like the numbers say we should change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's just the thing is the systems become what's driving schooling, right? The accounting and the reporting and so forth, rather than a sense about, you know, what students need, what p good pedagogy would be like. There's nothing in date in these data things that tell you how to teach something better. Um, you know, there's nothing in looking at data that will tell you how to do that. And I, so I'm not a person who's against data, right? I'm <clears throat> a researcher at the university. That's kind of my job. And I, and I believe in that quite a bit. Um, but one thing that we know, you know, looking at, I, I've also studied how people use data. This is something that we see, you know, as well, um, not just in these districts. And um, so that's just an area that I think is, you know, really of concern and people are somewhat more aware of this. So I think there are ways to use data and to expand the kinds of data that people use um, that could have different effects, right? Um, you can look at other things besides test scores. You can test um, or create, collect data in other areas that are not just reading and math, um, uh, for example, but it can become just kind of a you know, a gospel <laughs> um, around data use where we're not necessarily like thinking about if it's actually just, um, if it's actually helping to address the needs. And I think in many cases it was diverting from attention to more, um, to other things. This is a public affair on WORT. Today our guest is Erica Turner. She's discussing her book, Suddenly Diverse, How School Districts Manage Race and Inequality from the University of Chicago Press. The book is part of the upcoming Wisconsin Book Festival. This is a pre-recorded interview. At the end of your book, you, you do kind of allude to other ways that it could have gone or, or paths forward for administrators that uh, they could, you know, maybe choose a different way. Uh, you want to go over some of the, the prescriptions you, you talk about? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have this like wham, bam, this is the thing that can make everything different. And I'm really, I do want to emphasize that it's, my point is not so much that they made different bad choices in these cases because really part of the reason that things are similar in Milltown and Fairview, despite them being such different communities, is that there's a lot of shared structural issues that they confront. Budget cuts make it more important or make them feel that they need to cater to these white privileged families more because they're cutting every dollar feels really important. Um, and it is, you know, you need those money to put on 
and education, um, the you know they they are facing these pressures around accountability. So those things are real and they're shared in both places in ways that I think really matter and that contribute to this pattern across the two places. This. Um, uh, race evasive managerialism, but there's some things they could have done be- differently. I think you know, um, just being aware, as they often were, of these patterns and questioning kind of some of that, um, those assumptions. Um, you probably won't make everyone happy when you're trying to change a system. So you know, that's one thing that I often point to is they they had hoped to kind of um, not ruffle any feathers and so they made choices to like not upset teachers or um, to, to attract white families often privileging those over kind of a broader vision and it wasn't even something that they thought was always right <laughs> um, they might have been really critical of those actors but yet they were responsive to them as well um, and I think sometimes, you know, some of the strategies they can also do is like everything cannot be done in the schools, but working with communities um, is another, you know, important piece of the puzzle to kind of build the support for the things that they're trying to do rather than, in a sense, capitulating to the, the loudest actors. Yeah, um, one of the things that I think came through in your book that's really interesting is how the school is like basically the last big public institution and it's also like the way we imagine we are going to achieve equity and also the way we propagate social inequality and so it has this uh, you you call it a contradiction in your book that that these district administrators are trying to square that they don't they never quite achieve so uh, yeah i was just curious where you see that now yeah. I mean, I think, well, it, it still exists. So the, the way I like sometimes explain it to people is um, if you imagine Norman Rockwell has a painting of Ruby Bridges, in, uh, you know, kind of single handedly a six year old girl, a black girl desegregating the um, Little Rock schools. And um, she we think of that picture, which uh, that painting, which is also based on a photo as kind of uh, like it's, it can give a lot of people like this warm feeling. Here's this brave child. It, it's um, it kind of elicits this feeling of like you know education being this kind of great equalizer, perhaps, or a moment of civil rights glory. Um, but behind that picture, or another way to look at that very same thing is there are the you know the the National Guard. They're armed. They are holding off a whole uh, mob of white families, often mothers, who did not want Ruby Bridges to go to that school. And that's what education in the U.S. still is. It is from the beginning has been an institution built on segregation and racism. And we have adjusted some things and others still exist, right? So our schools are still funded locally, um, which allows residential segregation to then feed in to how schools are funded and run and where people attend them, right? And at the same time, we hold education as kind of like our route towards democracy and towards the kind of society, equitable society that we 
want to achieve. And schools are seen as the place that can also do that. And that's just the perennial challenge that district leaders face, whether they're school board members or superintendents, is they're trying to create equity out of an inequitable system. And it, it, it's not clear that it can be done without changing something about that system and also the society it's in. So I'm not saying that it can't be done, but probably not through data use um, or not simply through marketing the schools. Well, we're coming up on the end of our time, but I, I did want to touch on uh, race discourse has changed a lot since 2009 in schools and in the, in the public. Um, do you see that as sort of the a, a reaction to this race-evasive managerialism, an extension of uh, race-evasive managerialism? How have things changed in the, in the 10 years since you, you gathered your data? Yeah, I mean, uh, I thought about this a lot. And I think one of the interesting things, I, I went back as I was writing the book. It took me a long, a long time to write the book. Um, and so things had changed, but in a way they hadn't. So when I first started trying, you know, trying to to figure out what I was going to study um, and where I was going to do it. I was reading a lot. I was doing some research on the internet and I quickly, I was interested in, you know, kind of um, places that were, had anti-immigrant sentiment or pro-immigrant sentiment and very quickly trying to understand that um, kind of unearthed this whole, not very buried um, ecosystem of very strong racist anti-immigrant sentiment, all these message boards, et cetera, with just a, a few clicks. And those were there. I wasn't aware of them, but they were already there, you know, in 2008. And maybe a little bit people on them were a little less emboldened um, than they are now. Um, at the same time, this kind of race evasive discourse was also very prominent. That's what I was, you know, uncovering in Fairview and Old Town or trying to bring to light. And, you know, then we see where there's an emboldened kind of, you know, it's not, people aren't trying to hide their racism, if you will, um, now, but I think that was always there. And one of the things about the race evasiveness is that because it kind of denies or minimizes racism, it's fertile ground for the racism actually to bloom. Uh, then, you know, these uh, kind of charges of reverse racism or other things make more sense if you deny that racism already exists. Um, so they're, they're, they're not exactly opposite. They're actually can be synergistic. Um, and I think both continue to operate right now. When I talk to district leaders and, and educators in different places now, they're like, yes, right? Schools aren't, most schools are not saying like, let's be racist now. Again, to the point that Donald Trump also says that he's not racist, I think. Um, and then he, you know, actually references many white supremacist groups that call themselves white supremacist or the kinds of rhetoric that they use. Um, so this kind of, these can go hand in hand. And the fact that we might deny racism exists through race evasive language may only make it more possible to then, um, to, to then promote, you know, white supremacy. That was Erica Turner discussing her book, Suddenly Diverse, How School Districts Manage Race and Inequality. She will be presenting the book as part of the Wisconsin Book Festival on October 21st at the Madison Central Library. Dr. Turner, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
You've been listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'd like to thank our producer Jade for helping set up this show. Thanks for listening. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street.